back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, is my co-hosts, Victoria Monday, and down in the chat room, Alina, moderating the chat. We have a fantastic episode coming up for you tonight. Uh, Terry Lovelace is with us to talk about his excuse me, his incident at Devil's Den. Uh, it's a really uh, fantastic, wild, and kind of scary story here uh, when you get down to it. But he has a very interesting background. Uh, six years in the Air Force. So, uh, you know, Terry, thank you for your service. Really happy to have another uh, U.S. Air Force veteran with us this evening. Uh, he was also an attorney, actually uh, retired as the uh Assistant Attorney General in the state of Vermont. So um, a very learned man. And, uh, you know, what's interesting to me is you have uh, very intellectual people like Terry coming forward now telling these stories and relating things that have happened to them. So, uh, Terry, without further ado, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us tonight. And I do encourage everybody in June to watch him speak at Contact in the Desert. Yes, thank you both. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Victoria. It's nice to be here. Uh, it's nice to meet you. Yes, and uh, and yeah, contact in the desert is coming up June twenty first through twenty fifth, and that should be yeah. uh, should, that should be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, virtual event this year. A little bit different oh. than you know because of COVID and the way things are are kind of falling out this year. But it should still be a fantastic event. And you know, really, just want to kind of. You know, dive right into your story, Terry, and you know exactly what happened to you. Uh, this was uh, at a state park in Arkansas, and you were just out camping, and you know, something very bizarre happened to you. It, that that's true. It was 1977. I was active duty in the Air Force. I was active duty from 73 to 79, and uh, a guy I worked with said, uh, "I got an idea, man. Let's go camping." And uh, I was a city kid. I'd never been camping. He was from Flint, Michigan. I knew pretty certainly that he had not been camping. And I was kind of like, you know, why? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he knew that I was an amateur photographer. I had a new camera. But, you know, we both lived in NCO housing on base. So, and it was a sack base. And, you know, you couldn't just stroll around, take pictures. So, you know, I was, I was itching to get someplace where I could photograph wildlife. And he said, this is a, this is the place. And it was six, six, like a six hour drive. Oh, wow. But he's like, you know, Hey, isn't, isn't the road trip part of the, part of the adventure? And mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And uh, so, so we did, we went down and we, um, we trespassed actually into <laughs> what's, what's no, really no longer part of devil's den. It's actually carved out and owned by the Bureau of land management and leased to some wow. private individual. Uh, and there's a high plateau um, in the middle of the thing that's uh, the top of it is just flat as a pool table, why they call it a plateau. But the top is, uh, is, is even with the treetops. So unless you're right up on it, you can't see it. That's it. That's where we stayed. Uh, and it was, it's, it, there are a few buildings here and there around it. Um, but when we were there in June of 1977, it was extremely remote. Yeah, I love how from the from the top view it almost looks triangular shaped. Mm -hmm. It does. It really does. And did you know they keep the top of that mode with a tractor still to this day? Do they really? Wow. If you zoom in on that, you can see well, you can kind of see vertical lines uh, yeah. mm -hmm. parallel to one another. Those are tractor marks where they go up there with a brush hog, get up there via a, a dirt road, and they cut the top of that plateau in the middle of nowhere. But why are they doing that? I don't know. It's a lot of gas. That's a lot of taxpayer gas to burn for 50 years. Um, yeah. I mean, I can only make assumptions, but it's just, it's just strange. So, but when we got there, it was a beautiful place. Uh, it was full of, you know, not quite knee high grass and late wildflowers. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was breathtaking. And we set up our little campsite on the side uh, off by the tree line. So we weren't directly in the middle of the field. Uh, I call it a meadow, and it was. Um, I'm glad that we set up where we did, um, because otherwise we'd have been right under this thing when it when it came and and uh, was over us. Uh, what happened was we were we were 
we'd had a fun day, you know, it was, oh, this stuff was all new to us. We did all the fun stuff you do when you go camping, you know, and, and really enjoyed ourselves. And in the evening, we were sitting across a campfire. We were on inflatable air mattresses, had a little tent set up. And, uh, and this sounds cliche, but this is what happened. And that is that the voices of the tree frogs and the bugs and all the things in the forest that make noise went, it went silent. I mean, it went dead, dead quiet. And that unnerved me. Um, didn't, it didn't phase my friend, but I, you know, I, I was, uh, I wasn't comfortable with it. And he's like, yeah, you know, don't worry about the bugs, man. They'll come back. They'll be back. Don't worry. We've just been loud and, and, and laughing and cutting up. We've just quieted them and they'll come back. So we uh, went on with our conversation and we're just kind of, uh, you know, just chatting and having a nice time. And he's fixated to something on the Western horizon. And what he saw was a cluster of three little stars packed in a tight triangle sitting above the horizon. And he asked me, were those there before? And I'm like, no, those weren't there before at all. I mean, the only light we could see was on the Eastern horizon. We could see the dim little glow from the campsite the park's campsite that was some miles away. So I'm looking at these things and they're, they're, they're too far above the horizon to have been lights from a train or a parking lot or something. And then they moved, they rotated like they were on an axis, which was strange. I wasn't expecting that motion. And then they started, what it did was it turned, it rotated about 120 degrees and aligned the base of the, of the triangle parallel with the horizon. And then it started to go up into the air. And as soon as that happened, I felt this weird sensation of calm wash over me. And my friend must did experience the same thing and was in the same kind of uh, almost a twilight kind of thing. I felt um, mildly sedated and uh, kind of disinterested. I mean, I'm watching this thing play out, but not like a, not like a participant, more like a observer, if that makes sense. I feel like I feel detached, dissociated from it in some way. Um, but I think it speaks Is it to almost like you were seeing yourself watching this or just, just kind yeah, of, yeah, maybe so. Maybe I could have, yeah, out of it. Uh, it was a strange place, uh, hmm. to be mentally. It was, uh, it was very much like, uh, I was given Versed once, um, a broken, broken arm and they gave me a drug called Versed, um, which is also an amnesiac, by the way, it takes away your memory oh, wow. and, uh. Uh, so I have most of my memory, I think, intact of some of most of this leading up to what happened. But um, but, yeah, it was I felt absolutely sedated. You know, our, our emotions were muted. It, they were they were inappropriate. I mean, when you see something like this, we should have had some kind of reaction other than, you know, just kick back on airbags mattresses watching this thing play out. Yeah. You think usually you'd be surprised and, you know, be pointing in the air. Hey, look at that. And. and some sort of excitement, but yeah, that was seemed you know, to have like the exact opposite reaction. We we did, we did, and yeah, I mean, no, you're you're spot on. You know, two people experience something, you would want to be validating each other. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? What could that be? And there was none of that conversation. So, and while we watched it, it climbed up to what I what I called the ceiling where it stopped. And I'm guessing, and it's just an assumption, maybe ten thousand feet, and. It was in a vertical position where the, you know, we could see two points of the triangle and then the apex at the top and it stopped. And then for just a second, and then it oriented itself horizontal to the ground. And then while we're watching, it did this um, glide plane type thing. And we could see that it was headed in our direction. And we had no, um, no fear. Uh, and really very little curiosity. It was just a strange event. And we watched it as it, as it, as it dropped down, it, um, it grew, it got bigger, you know, and the points all remained equidistant to one another as it spread apart. And the sky was just, it was, it was a gorgeous night. There were like a trillion stars out and around the triangle, it was uh, dark blue, but inside this triangle was black. So we knew we were looking at one solid object. And it did this weird tumbling type thing where the, the tip of the triangle would dip down and it would do a complete somersault. Uh, and it did that twice. And I had the feeling that 
it did that for our benefit to show us that it's not just out of control, but it's moving with some kind of purpose. I don't know, you know, but that was my thought anyway. Let me ask you this. I use this graphic here for, you know, the, the thumbnail art, you know, I just grabbed it off the, the internet, but I mean, is that similar to what it looked like? I mean, this is some artist interpretation of a triangular shaped UFO. It's very similar. I've seen this before, but that it's, it's the one we saw was different in that it was a bit deeper than that. And the lights were on what I called a light bar that ran the length and depth, the depth of the thing on each point of the triangle. And then underneath, there seemed to be a round circular uh, light of some kind that we really wasn't didn't light up until it had had parked over our heads. Um, Grab the illustration off your website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the best representation there. That shows that what I call a light panel, and there was a little bar of light that would run up and down that. And Mm -hmm. as it was moving around, I think that. When it was in the sky, it gave the impression of a twinkling star. Oh, interesting. And then as it got, as it got lower, it dimmed those lights on the tips and, uh, and it kind of glided in. Now we couldn't see the sides at first. What it did was it came in at about 3000 feet over the top of the meadow. So we could really only, only see the underside. And we saw some lights that came from the center and underneath, there was a cylinder of white light that had that quality like a, like a high-power search light you see cutting through fog. You see a column of white light, but of course, right. there, was no, there was no fog. There was just this visible white light. And that turned on, I mean, just in an instant and hit our campfire and stayed there for maybe 60 seconds. And then it turned out. And then immediately after that, there came... Um, a laser and lasers were kind of a new concept in 1977. I'd seen them on TV. I'd never seen them <laughs> for real before. So um, this was a laser about the set, about the diameter of a, of a lead pencil. And it landed in um, the campsite and would stay in one spot for a millisecond and then land somewhere else. And then somewhere else. So it had this illusion of like dancing all around the campsite, but it was hitting all the things that we brought. It hit me in the chest a couple times. I never felt a thing. I know it hit my friend. It hit the fire, hit the tent, hit his cooler, hit uh, his backpack, my car. And, you know, I I thought, you know, this thing's checking us out. I mean, it, it made sense. It's scanning us. And uh, that lasted a couple minutes. And then that went out. And then from there, we just got, I got incredibly sleepy. I mean, it shifted from mild sedation and disinterest to just absolutely all I wanted to do was go in a tent, lie down, and go to sleep. And that's what we did. And, you know, with this thing 3,000 feet over our heads, thankfully we had camped off to the side and it wasn't directly over our heads. Um, but yeah, again, that's, you know, not rational behavior. That's not what people do uh, is, is decide that it's bedtime while, while this is going on. And not while something like that is overhead. Go ahead, Victoria. I see you got okay. a question. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to put one and two together. Um, I've been in vortices. I lived in Arizona for a while. And sometimes you can get there and there's just a, a sense of calm. But you can move over to some, some other place and you're very agitated. So I was wondering, do you think if the ship was coming, I'm just going to call it a ship. Is that okay? Or craft or I whatever it, it is. Absolutely. Okay. If the shift was, ship was coming... Did it have some sort of um, energy or electromagnetic something or another that would actually like make the frogs and the crickets calm down and then later make you calm down? Do you think I, that's possible? Or I don't. I believe that. Like I believe that's what happened. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how they did it. I don't know if it was you know hypnosis or beams or what. I don't know what the mechanism was that did that. You know, yeah. but I can, I can sure speak to how I felt. Yeah, I was just you thinking. It's, maybe it's like a byproduct. You know, it's just something that occurs. Because of whatever kind of energy they're using. Or you know, I've had other people tell me that, too. Uh, I had I put an email address in the back of Incident at Devil's Den, and I said, look, I'm not a therapist or anything, but if you want to share your experience with me, I'd love to hear from you. And uh, at the time that I wrote the second book, The Reckoning, I had 1,400 responses from people. Wow. And um, a lot of them 
thank you. A lot of them um, report having that both that sense of uh, where, where everything goes still, mm-hmm. and then also I've heard of people experiencing that same sense of calm that, that we experienced. So, also a real you know I I, I I'm a, kind of like a data guy, so I put these out on a spreadsheet looking for commonalities, and I found some actually, and. One of the commonalities is that people that experience something like this, I mean, Betty and Barney Hill are kind of the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but if three people are like the Allagash Four, the book by Ray Fowler is a great example of two, the twin brothers and, and two of their friends. You know, they were all friends together. They fished together, hunted together, you know, drank together, did all the stuff that young people do. And, uh, after their event in Allagash on the lake fishing, they all kind of the band busted up and they all went in different directions. And that seems to be common. And it happened with us. Toby and I drifted apart. Mm. Weird. So yeah, we went, we went in the tent, we went to sleep or we were, I don't think we were asleep. I think we were unconscious and that's when they took us. Right. Yeah. And We'll get to that in just a second. I do want to recognize here, uh, Papa Bear dropped down a $5 super chat. So we appreciate that, Papa Bear. Uh, and also before the show, Tom McNicholas and Robert Hanna uh, oh. also did likewise. So uh, thank you all very, very much for that. But um, yeah, Terry, that it just, it's the beginning of your story. You know, you had this sighting, you had a very uh, odd reaction to it, but the story does not end there. No, it doesn't. I, we, I woke up. Um, I had no idea what time it was because my watch had stopped. I had a nice mechanical wind-up watch. It had stopped. And I woke up to these flashing lights um, through the canvas of the tent. They were really bright. They were as bright as camera flashes. And they, were, they would light up the inside of the tent like crazy. And that's what woke me up. And I woke up and I didn't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, where am I? Oh, yeah, we're camping. That's right. And I sat up and I noticed that my shoes, well, my co- I wore my combat boots. They'd been unlaced all the way down almost. I knew I didn't do that. I went to bed with my boots laced to the top. And, you know, I would have taken them off maybe or I'd have left them on, but I wouldn't have left them like that. That makes sense. So, right. yeah. and I wasn't frightened, but you know what I was? I was annoyed. And, and I, I, I sat up and I took them off and my socks were on sideways. And that confused me because I knew I didn't do that. So I took everything off, put everything on right, laced up my shoes, and I turned my attention to my friend who's on his knees looking out his flap of the tent at something in the meadow. And um, I'm thinking that these flashing lights are from a park, you know, flashing overhead lights from a park ranger's truck there to kick us out. That's what I thought. And I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? Is it, is it park rangers? What's out there? And in one of these flashes of light that lit up the inside, because unless these lights were flashing, the inside of the t- tent was very dark. But in one of these flashes of light, I could see the um, light here uh, fluoresced, the tear. There was a tear track down the right side of his face. Hmm. And that, that frightened me. And that was the first bit of fear that I experienced because I couldn't think what could make this guy cry. And uh, I pulled back of the flap of the tent on my side, and I looked out into the meadow, and this thing that was 3,000 feet over our heads when we went to bed had descended and was now 30 feet over the floor of the meadow. And that's why we were able to see, we were offset. That's why we were able to see the side of it with the windows and the observation mm-hmm. deck and, the, and to get an idea how huge it was. Um, I mean, it was like an office building. And I don't understand to this day why this thing wasn't seen in five counties. I mean, we were in a remote location, but this, this thing was so lit up and so big, it it baffles me why uh, why there weren't reports. I did, if you look at the bottom of that, I drew a little car, two stick figures in a tent. Yeah. Trying to put some kind of, um, yeah, some kind of scale to it. Um, but I'm not sure that just really does it justice. It really was more like a floating medical building. And uh, yeah, yeah, it looks pretty huge. Yeah, it, it was big. I mean, it was intimidating. And in one of the flashes of light, I saw what I thought were like about a dozen kids. I didn't count them, but somewhere between 12 and 15. And they're paired up in twos and threes. And they're just kind of wandering around this meadow. 
I can see them in silhouette, kind of, uh, and I can see them more clearly whenever the flashes of light would go off because this thing is so low now and, and near, the, near the ground. And I'm, I asked Toby, I said, Toby, man, what are these little kids doing out here in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere? And he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And when he said that, you know, my fear level went from like a two to a 10. And uh, I had, I've never had a clear linear memory of what all happened, but I did have flashes of memory of being inside this thing. And it's interesting. He had, it seems like he had an immediate memory and you needed him to say that to kind of jog yours a bit. I did. I said, cause I had no memory. Um, like I say, I woke up, I was in a, a fog or something. I, and we never discussed it. I don't know how long he had been awake, but uh, sometime before I was. Let me ask you real quick. Um, was Toby older than you by any chance? He was. He was one. I was 22 at the time. He was 23. Okay. Because this is my intuition kicking off here. Um, I remember the 70s and around the same time period, everything was UFO. Do you think he was interested in UFOs and this is something he had in his consciousness? And because... Um, didn't I read somewhere that he was also into astronomy and the night sky? Now that he was, uh, okay. his goal in life, he was a gifted mathematician. He wanted a yeah. degree in physics and undergrad and then go on to study at the graduate level, cosmology or astronomy. That was his goal. Yeah. So do you think maybe he was abducted before and this was something just, you know, like salmon going upstream to spawn, you have to go back, but you don't know why. Do you think maybe he was just because there were so many synchronicities, you know, you forgot your camera and the chain was undone and everything just stacked up so easily for y'all to it, get there. It felt like we were keeping an appointment. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect at the time, no, it didn't, but right. in retrospect, yeah, it was like keeping an appointment. Hmm. We had never discussed the topic of UFOs never came up. We had never discussed it. Uh, I wish I had, cause I had some experiences as a kid. I bet he had too. And we never, we never talked about it, but back then, you know, uh, matter of fact, we made a pact coming back, um, that we would tell no one that we saw what we saw, uh, because we knew at least in the air force that I was in, in 1977, it would have been a trip to a psych ward. Right. No questions asked. So this was in the summer, Same right? thing in 92. So I, bet. Well. <laughs> I don't think it changed that much. Yeah. This was in the summer. <laughs> Everything happened? Yeah, it was June, June 11th, I think. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I, I was trying to put a timeline together and then later that year, um, close encounters was released. How did, how did you feel about that? I mean, close encounters came out in November Yeah. and I didn't see the movie for probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, oh, well, when I did see it, um, I was a little freaked out at the scene at the end where a ramp lowers, there's some lights in the background and a fog kind of uh, hazy kind of, and then the, the little gray guys step out from the shadows. And um, that was a little bit uh, too close to home. <laughs> yeah, it was. it was. Was it eerily similar? Yeah. It was. Yeah, it was very much. And I mean, I, these scenes that I have, I mean, I, I've had because I remembered them, because I experienced them, and because I've had nightmares about the same. I've had the same nightmares for forty, you know, four years now. Next year will be the forty-fifth year. Wow! Do something. Time flies. Time does fly. <laughs> Do they happen at the same time? The recurring nightmares, like same time of the year, are they always in the summer, or just is there something uh, that triggers them? Okay. They're sporadic. They're. they're I, I, I don't know that I, I don't know of a trigger for them. I, I don't, I don't watch sci-fi. I've never been a sci-fi fan. I don't watch um, a lot of, uh, you know, space related stuff. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, really in 2012, I, I had an x-ray of my leg at uh, VA hospital in Dallas and I had pain in my knee. I retired from the state of Vermont in January, 2012 and moved to Dallas where we have our adult, we have adult children here and grandkids. So, you know, I was retired from Vermont. We wanted to go be with our kids. So that's what we did. And, um, yeah, I went to the hospital for knee pain. They x-rayed my knee and they found, uh, two, according to the radiologist, anomalous objects above one above and one below my knee, the thing above my knee. Um, yeah, that's, 
The thing below my knee there in the calf, that little florette pattern is made out of bone tissue. Um, and what you're seeing there on the right is that bone tissue that's in the florette pattern. You're seeing that from a side position. Oh. So that's... That's interesting. Yeah. So those things are thin. Uh, but the radiologist said they look like they're made out of bone tissue. Uh, they're not, he doesn't think they're foreign objects. Uh, if you have an image, if I sent you an image of the thing on the front, on the top of, above my knee, that has uh, a square structure. That's it. Yeah, it's got a square structure, about the size of a fingernail with two wires attached. And that was above my knee. And um, that, that one kind of freaked the radiologist out because he said, there should be a scar on your leg. And I, I, I argued with him, and I said, doctor, there is no scar on my leg. I've never in, injured that knee other than you know, skin knee as a kid, maybe. And uh, he said, no, you got to have a scar there because you can't violate the integrity of the skin and place something that deep into fish tissue and fascia and muscle or whatever it's into, and, and there not be a scar. That's not possible. And uh, he was visibly kind of shaken when he looked at my knee and discovered that there, there is no scar. And I said, well, doctor, let me ask you, how often is it you see a foreign object like this in the human body and there not be a corresponding right. scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. I, I can't account for how this thing got in your leg. Has that been in your leg since the 70s? Or do you think it were taken again? And I think it was taken in the 1970s. Uh, okay. Sometime prior to 1979, I, I think 1977. Um, but that's just a guess. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was there in 1979 because I started running in 1979. And that was just above my right knee and lateral to the right. And uh, I, I liked running and I became kind of addicted to it. I ran every day. I didn't run marathons, but I'd run three or four miles, maybe five miles a day. But I ran almost every day. And every time I'd hit the two-mile mark in my run, I mean, you know, give or take 50 yards, there was this spot on my knee that would go numb completely numb. And I could take a safety pen with me. And at the end of my run, it felt, uh, you know, like a shot of Novocaine in your mouth, kind of itchy and numb at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah. And I could take a pen and delineate the outline of the thing. And it was perfectly circular and it was just absolutely numb. Uh, and that would wear off in about 30 minutes after my run. And my doctor, I asked my doctor about it, 1980 or 1981. And, and she said, oh, it's a histemic reaction of some kind, whatever that is. And um, she said, if, the, if it doesn't interfere with your run, I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't. But, you know, when I saw that, when I saw that x-ray, because they showed them to me, as I demanded to see them politely, and, and they showed it to me. And that immediately, I immediately connected that to that spot on my leg that goes numb. And in my mind, that validated that they put their hands on me. And that made it hard to process and that kind of reawakened things. And that was that this was really the catalyst. Neither one of these things had anything to do with my knee pain. My knee pain was caused by what's called a Baker's cyst underneath the, underneath the patella, the kneecap. That's just a benign cyst that you get, goes away in a couple of weeks there. You know, it's just painful for a little while. So they caught these things by, by random, by chance. Wow. Yeah. Now this thing, I mean, it looks like a chip with a couple of small, Antenna. Yeah. Um, you know, what was I mean, obviously the, the doctors a bit befuddled because there's no there's no scar. But did he have an initial assessment as to what this thing may have been in your leg? No, the radiologist did not. He called it an anomaly. Now they took the the VA took 24 photographs of my knee, and. Um, I had to threaten to take them. I had to threaten to go to court to get copies. I mean, I filed all the paperwork, did everything, went down to the custodian of records and said, look, I, I want copies of my x-rays. Well, you got a radiology report. That's all you need. I said, no, no, I know what I need. I need my x-rays and I have a right to them. And um, finally, after about 90 days, I, I said, I, I want my x-rays or I'm going to file an action in Dallas United States District Court. I know how to do that. And I'm going to get my x-rays. And I had them, you know, 48 hours later. So, but I got three. And I said, wait a minute. Not all of them. Yeah, you owe me 21. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we're so sorry. Those were, those were deemed to have, uh, to be not good quality and they weren't saved. Mm. Uh -huh. Yeah, of course. Of course, that's what they said. 
So uh, we have some questions from the chat room uh, since we're about at our halfway mark. And usually we try to work a few in from our uh, our viewers Good. down there. Uh, this one is from, and, and we do uh, later on rebroadcast on a couple of different podcast platforms, Spotify, iHeartRadio. We want to also thank our KGRA listeners when this is syndicated on KGRA. So a uh, question here from Sarah Youssef. How has your overall personality changed since then? Uh, dramatically. It was, it, was an, it was a major event in my life. I think that Toby and I both went down there a couple of uh, teenagers and we came back adults. Uh, it was a major event in my life. Um, I measure my life pre-1977 and post-1977. I mean, it's almost like, like people that tell me about their NDE experiences. It's kind of that same kind of... Uh, so it was a you know big event in my life. I mean, sorry kids, you were big too, but you know this was. <laughs> no, you grew up overnight or that evening. Yeah, yeah it's traumatic. It did, yeah. Mm. So from our chat moderator Alina, uh, do you think that they were the implants were done for some sinister reasons that we don't know? You know, it's just an assumption on my part. I have no way of knowing. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I feel like they're there. They serve some purpose. Um, and I mean, it would make sense that they're there to track me. Um, and I don't think I'm anybody special. I think that I'm, you know, I got lots of letters from people who had anomalous things in their bodies too. Uh, and you know, um, I think they take a random sample of people and I just happen to be Toby and I just, I don't know. I don't think we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I, like I said, there had, there was that feeling of keeping an appointment to it. And, um, but yeah, they serve some purpose. I, 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 I'm just speculating. I don't know what their purpose is or what they do. It's sinister. It could be. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that they've done me any good. Um, I can't say they've done me any harm either. Other than, other than, you know, psychologically, they've not been good right, for me. Yeah. Would it be the equivalent of like um, tagging an eagle just to, you know, keep track of where it goes or something? Or Boy, that's, you know, the example in my mind has always been like, you know, a, like a lion on a Serengeti plane or something. You know, they, mm -hmm. they get shot, they get anesthetized, they have things done to them, and they wake up and, you know, they've got... Uh, maybe a tag on their leg that they don't notice or if they yeah. notice they're like, Oh, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think it's very similar to that. Uh, can I ask you one question about your, um, I don't want to keep asking all the questions. Sorry, Mike. No. Uh, about oh, the, you're uh, fine. <laughs> I have Go so ahead. many questions. Um, so I find this really fascinating. Um, years ago I saw a fire in the sky and when I realized that was based on a true story that terrified the crap out of me. So I can only imagine it's like, if that's true, um, but you were in the Air Force? Yes. Did you have missiles on your base? We did. We had Minutemen 2 ICBM missiles. Uh, a squadron of them spread out all over the countryside because it was in the middle of nowhere then. Uh, yeah. Whiteman uh, also had a uh, squadron of B-52 bombers with the nuclear weapons and then the KC-135 tankers in back of them. Because yeah. uh, my dad was in the, um, he was in the Army. And he never wants to talk about his experiences, but he was in Washington state guarding missiles. And he said, um, all of a sudden something came on the radar and they were, they were put on alert. They were getting ready to fight back and they didn't know what they thought it was coming over from Russia. And it just disappeared. And it, it came like just within a few minutes of sending something up to counteract it. Yeah. So I'm, I've always, that's always fascinated me. But I, I met Robert Hastings. Um, and we've kind of become friends. He wrote a book 15 years ago, UFOs and Nukes. Mm -hmm. And he and Bob Jacobs wrote a book uh, last year uh, called Confessions, where they both admit that they were abducted. And Robert had Robert Hastings had never come forward with that before. But, but the point of my story was Robert had talked to thousands of people on nuclear bases. Uh, his kind of, he kind of laser focused on people that were active duty on, on nuclear bases, like Bob Salas, mm -hmm. um, you know, that had these experiences and um, has talked to thousands of vets. And um, that's why I was wondering if it's a triangle 
that you said it's still being mowed after all these years and the ship was a triangle and you got some nukes there. Do you think this is someplace they always keep their eye on? They come and visit? Yeah, I do. Okay. Well, I think they come down and check things out. Yeah. Yeah, that that is really interesting that they still mow this. That is, that's a great point, Victoria. And that's I mean, the perfect and shape, it's the, too. And it's the shape, yeah. Yeah. And it's just interesting. Okay, why? What is so significant about this location that they continue to do that? You know, I didn't even know this. Uh, I described it in my book uh, as being horseshoe shaped because we'd walk the perimeter of it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I never thought to look on Google Earth because I thought, sure, this place has to be covered with 40 year old mature trees, right? Right. And I was shocked it's to find. Still uh, clearing. Yeah, the guys from Astonishing Legends said, Is this where you camped? And I'm like, Yeah, if you're reading my book, that's. It to a T, and uh, and the base is still active there. It's yeah, it's home to the B two bombers now. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Hey, uh, real quick, we have a uh, ten dollar super chat from Anne Celine. Great show tonight, oh. she says. Thank you very much for that, Anne. Absolutely appreciate it. And we have a uh, question here from Coyote Chris Sutton. He asks, uh, Terry, do you feel like you've been stigmatized even though no one else can see it? Um, I, you know, I don't think that I've been stigmatized. I worried about that. And that's the reason that I never, I never brought this forward when I worked in the law, uh, you know, because I was a civil servant and I knew that I'd be out of a job if I wrote this, you know, back when I was working and uh, I knew I'd be ostracized by my peers in the legal community. Um, and I decided uh, in 2016 that I really wanted to do this and I didn't care. I'm retired. I don't care about <laughs> my friends or my friends. I'll find out who my friends really are. And I did. Um, but you know, I don't feel stigmatized. I kind of feel the opposite. Actually. I, I, I was worried about, you know, losing friends in the legal community, but I found out that the, the UFO community uh, is really kind of a collection of really cool, really nice people. And I've made more and better friends here than I ever had, you know, when I, when I was working for the, for the government. So I don't, you know, I'd rather That's be good. here. And, and, you know, that was actually something that I wanted to, to bring up tonight. So thank you, Chris, for <laughs> leading in uh, with that question, because I, I know that, um, you know, gentlemen like yourself uh, and, and ladies, too, that uh, you're coming forward with your with your story now. And, you know, those different skeptics and doubters, you know, will throw at you. Oh, you know, why are you doing this after so many years? And I don't think people quite understand. I mean, you had you know, a profession <laughs> for all that time that, um, you know, and, and a, you know, very distinguished one that uh, would not have been ideal for you to uh, come forward, you know, say, you know, 20, 30 years ago. No. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I had a family to feed. I had a, you know, a mortgage to pay and, and I had a decent reputation in the legal community. And those two things were important to me. And, uh, could you use a, a pseudonym, or do you think maybe we weren't ready to hear this yet? No, a pseudonym wouldn't work. Uh, it, it wouldn't be honest. I mean, I right. wanted to be honest, and, uh, you know, I think you need to be, when you're honest, you need to be fully honest. But, you know, I don't think this book had been well-received as it was. I mean, five years earlier, I don't think it would have been anywhere nearly as well-received. That's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. You said you were a photographer, amateur photographer. Um so am I kind of, but uh, I know the passion and the drive, you know, and photographer people, they love their photography. Photographs are just crazy. Do you still do that? Or is that something you gave up? I, um, I still do that, you know, with a camera on my phone, but you know, I don't have yeah. a 35 millimeter black and white dark room anymore. Although it'd be uh -huh. kind of fun. Yeah. Kind of fun, kind of old school, you know, mm -hmm. um, especially up in Dallas, a lot of great places to go shoot. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, what's crazy is that the whole time Toby and I are laying on these things, watching this thing over our heads, I left my camera at home, which was crazy because that was the point of the exercise for me going. But Toby had a camera in his, in his backpack, a foot away from him. And the thought of taking a picture of this thing never crossed our mind, never crossed cool? my mind. And that's insane. That, and again, I think it speaks to the level of their influence on us. Because of the sedate, very calm nature of the evening, so to speak. 
Well, I mean, I've heard that. I think it's a situation because I've been in similar situations before where you're observing something. It was a a totally different uh, situation. But, you know, about two years ago, we're witnessing something. And, you know, it was one in which we were a little bit more surprised. We weren't, you know, kind of that sedated Mm -hmm. uh, mode that you were in, Terry. But, you know, we're, we're watching this thing happen. And there's five of us there. And it didn't occur to any of us. And we all have cell phones these days. Didn't occur to any of us to take a photo. I sure had a lot of people write and tell me that they, that they were in that same situation. The thought of taking yeah. the phone didn't happen until it was over. Yeah. Hmm. Do you That's think bizarre. you're being being watched by um, anyone? I was told to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've had a couple experiences. I, I won't go into all of them. Uh, oh, no. And I haven't had anything that's really you know, spot on conclusive, but yeah, I did have a weird experience. And that was last summer. Um, my wife and I, we just moved into this, this new house and, uh, we're kind of in a subdivision that has, has no, no freeway. I mean, you, you can't get, you can't come into the subdivision, and get anywhere except around the subdivision. Right. And we had the silver left the house across the street from us had sold and was vacant, uh, for a couple of weeks. And during that time, uh, this silver Lexus would park across the street. And, you know, at first it was like, you know, what's up with this Lexus? Who's, you ever seen anybody come in or go out or leave? And it had tinted windows and uh, it would come in the morning, uh, leave at lunch, come back after lunch and, you know, just kind of stay there till after dinner and then drive away. And we never saw anybody get out of the car. And at, at first it was kind of funny and then it, it, it became kind of irritating. And yeah. my wife is like, you know, I really feel like these things, these guys are spying on us. And I said, yeah, I, I think, I think they are. And I, I mean, I am in Texas and I, I <laughs> put, I put a pistol in my back pocket and I took my cell phone in my hand and I walked across the street and then I knocked on the tented window of the driver's side and it rolled down about that much. And I bent over and I looked inside and here's two guys in business suits. And I'm like, what are you guys doing staking out my house? And window goes up and they drove away. And I got a photograph of their driver's license plate. And I sent it to, I still have friends in law enforcement. And it was tracked to a car rental car company in Dallas, Fort Worth, at Dallas, Fort Worth Airport. And so would you consider these guys like the men in black? I would. I'll tell you why. Because... That, that car company doesn't rent cars with lint, tinted windows, and that license plate belongs to a Ford Focus. Ooh. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Ooh. So, yeah, I think I, there have been a couple other incidents, too. Yeah. Uh, I, and I know it sounds cliche, but I had the helicopters over the house for a little while when we were in another house. Part of the reason we sold our old home. Mm-hmm. Um, the TTSA guys contacted me. Tom DeLong called me. I put my book out in incident at Devil's Den out in March of 2018. And in April, he called me and I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't know who he was. And it's like, hi, Terry, it's Tom DeLong. I saw Los Angeles on my phone. I got friends in LA and oh, okay. Uh, hi, Tom, how are you? And he says, I'm good. I have Lou Elizondo and uh, Hal Putoff here on the phone with me. And uh, I want to talk to you about the things in your legs. And I'm thinking, okay, okay, this has to be about my book, right? Mm-hmm. You know, then, yeah, we've, we read your book and uh, Lou here would like to come out and talk to you. I'm like, sure, c- come on out. And uh, so then they said TTSA and I'm, I'm frantically Googling TTSA into the Stars Academy while I'm on the phone with these guys. And uh, they, they were going to come then, but they didn't, Lou didn't come until June of 2019. Um, and he came out and spent two days at my house to see the um, helicopters flying around my house. Wow. Uh, oh, well. And he had a cameraman and wanted me to tell my story to them. Uh, and I was going to be on his show and then COVID hit and the, uh, mm. the filming stopped and uh, that never went anywhere. But, uh, but yeah, I've had, I've had weird, weird things like that. Uh, yeah. I've got, let me ask you about the, the guys in the car. Cause I've heard you know, a lot of varying descriptions uh, about these individuals. Do they just look, like, you know, regular, you know, human beings. Cause I hear stories sometimes about, uh, you know, some people believe some of not all, uh, of these men in black are the actual extraterrestrial themselves, you know, 
possibly in some sort of disguise. And there are others, you know, that are part of some you know, shadowy government organization. What do you think these guys were? You know, these guys look like two businessmen to me. I, I mean, they, they did not, there was nothing there that looked spooky or extraterrestrial or of anything of the kind. If anything, I got a cop vibe from them, if that makes hmm. sense. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So, very interesting. Interesting. You had said something. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day that you did, and it really stuck with me, and it, it just rings the truth. But you you said something about um, you can ask a kid, hey, what did you get for Christmas when you were three? They probably won't remember. But um, if you ask them about an event or something like that, when they were three, they can remember the details. Yeah. Or, or, at the time that I wrote The Reckoning, I had 1,400 emails, 1,430-some from people, and then it varied all the way up to 15 by the time I got done. But um, I had all these people write to me and say, uh, well, I, I've never had an experience, but I had this weird dream when I was anywhere between the ages of two and six, and this dream is as vivid today as it was as if I had it had, had it last night. And, uh, you know, be it 10, 50 years, 60 years later, you know, that dream's still with them. And everyone that told me this, irrespective of age, I wrote them all and I asked them all the same three questions. I said, in the year that you saw this, the first time, if they saw it more than once, the first time that you saw it, can you tell me what you got for Christmas that year? Um, you know, or, or whatever holiday you celebrate. Can you tell me where you went on family vacation? And can you tell me who was at your birthday party? And I had a few people say, well, I know Mary was there because she was my best friend at my birthday party. Um, but for the most part, that stuff's all gone. But that stupid little dream they had is, mm -hmm. is crystal clear. And those are the people that tended to tell me the more, the more, um, more I, won't, I won't say credible. I mean, everybody, everybody's story is credible to me. I don't, I don't judge. But they had maybe better stories. I think they had more intimate events. These were people that tended to have something a little more uh, involved than just uh, seeing a, a saucer dart across the sky. Right. Right. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so Terry, let's let's talk about the books here. You have two of them: Incident at Devil's Den, True Story, and then Devil's Den: The Reckoning. Uh, what can people expect in these books? Devil's Den, the first book I wrote, uh, tells the story about my experiences as a child. Um, I had, uh, well, you'd have to read it. Uh, it sounds kind of far-fetched, I know, but um, when I was little, I used to see these four little monkeys in my room that would step out of the shadows. And they were kind of comical at first, but, um, but I think that they were part of an abduction thing. I think they took me when I was a kid. And then I tell the story about, uh, you know, what happened in Devil's Den. I tell that story in great detail. And then in 1987, I had an event um, where I was on a motorcycle ride and I lost two hours of time. Hmm. And then in um, 2017, I had uh, another event. Um, you know, all, all, the, all these years ended in sevens. And, uh, oh, in, in 2017, I had an event when I was writing the book where I, uh, I woke up in my living room and I had what I think it was an encounter with an alien hybrid. I woke up and then she was sitting across from me dressed in black with a weird wig, which is why I called her Betty, uh, and a pair of big black glasses. And um, uh, this was no dream. I mean, I woke, I went to bed in my bed. I woke up in my living room. I'd never sleepwalked before. And, uh, I, I, I tell the story you. of that. Yeah. Yeah. I have to, I have to ask you, um, back to the, to the monkeys. Yes. What do the monkeys look like? To me, they look like little circus monkeys. And when I first saw them, I thought they were comical. They were about uh, two and a half feet tall. I picture them, they had masks. They had masks with uh, big yellow eyes and um, a grin painted on them. And they spoke to me telepathically and they asked me to go with them. Now, outrageous as that sounds, at the same time that I'm having this event with the monkeys in Northern California, pardon me, in Northern Arkansas, but nowhere, nowhere near Devil's Den on the other side of the state, I had a cousin 
who was having this problem with seeing little clowns in his room. Um, and so he had the same thing. And I got letters from people saying that as a kid, they saw orbs, they call, they saw uh, rabbits, owls, lots of owls, deer, uh, little gray men, Disney characters. Uh, I talked to a kid in El Paso who saw a um, possum and his mother said the kid was just, you know, five and six years old. I talked to the kid who was seven at this time. And he would see this ball of white light, an orb, come through the screen of his window in his room and manifest into a two-foot-tall possum that he thought was nice and friendly, hmm. that spoke to him telepathically, stood upright like a man. I think these things can appear to children in a way that the child will find most benign and non-threatening. And I think that's the reason people all see all see something different. I think they know what will will not frighten us, you know. Yeah. Have you seen a monkey, it, Mike? Well, I mean, I, I when he said the thing about the monkeys, I mean, honestly, it did strike mm -hmm. a memory that was just lodged away back there for for decades. So, um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned before the the blinking gorilla thing that I may have yeah. seen when I was about five, but the monkeys thing that was, um, it was a different time. Um, and I, I couldn't, I can't even tell you how old I was, maybe five or six, or maybe around the same age or something. Um, but yeah, I kind of, it just, you saying that kind of just brought back a quick memory of that's familiar. So I'll have to, um, I'll have to try to see if I can dig into that memory a little bit more. So, can, yeah, you tell, thank you, Terry. can you tell me what you got for Christmas that year? <laughs> At five or six, I don't know what I got for Christmas that year. Yeah, nobody does. I remember the year nobody I got the Millennium does. Falcon. I was seven. Oh. Ah. I remember that year. <laughs> That's funny because I, I think I've told you before, Mike, um, when I was three, this lady appeared in my, my, uh, the bedroom I was in when my mom and sister were yelling at each other. And um, the lady kept saying, you're not one of them, you're one of us. And she looked like the little fairy of Sleeping Beauty, because that was my frame of reference when I was three, you know, was Sleeping Beauty. But I remember yeah. that, and I got a toy box that year for Christmas, so I remember that. Uh, <laughs> I, believe, right I believe, I believe, yeah. I believe. She Was that telepathically that yes. she communicated? she goes, you are not like them. And she did that, and I circled around the room, and I came back down, and then she disappeared. Wow. So... I don't know. That's the only thing I remember from being three. But it's a great other than, memory. Other than that, in the toy box, it was a cool toy box. <laughs> <laughs> Had a bookshelf and everything. <laughs> so, did we talk about the reckoning? We yes. didn't, but, but but I will real quick. I'd like to. Uh, there are a bunch of unanswered questions in the in Devil's Den, such as um, some of the dark history about Devil's Den and. Uh, there's a case in there about a young man that went missing while I was writing the book. While I was writing the book, I stayed in contact with the local press down there in Arkansas. And uh, uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, kind of picks up on a lot of things that that uh, needed to be updated. You know, uh, what happened to Toby. Um, and then also, out of these out of these 1,400-some emails I got, I distilled them down to about 400 that I've had on a spreadsheet. And then from those, I took the best 50. And then I contacted these people and I said, I'm thinking about using your story in my book. I, I want to tell it factually, but if you like, I'll change the location or change your name, but I'd like the facts have to stay the same. And uh, I ended up with about 35 people um, who were eager for the world to hear their story, actually. And I put those stories in the back of the reckoning and they're they're just they're just little short stories, you know, five or six, maybe ten pages max. Um, but they're stories from real people that that contacted me that said, you know, a lot of them said, you know, I've never shared this with anyone in their in my life. But um, and then they tell me these amazing stories. And uh, you know, I had a seventy six year old woman from Henderson, Nevada, tell me just a great story. It's number one. It's the first story out of the thirty in the back of the book. And it's like, you know, how many 76-year-old women that are cognitively intact, like this woman was, you know, want to make up a fairy tale? You know, yeah. I just think she's just so credible. You think you're offering some sort of closure to help them? 
I do. Yeah, me too. That's good. I think it's a privilege when someone shares that with you and did yeah. not share it with anyone else. So, yeah. Absolutely. It's extremely personal. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, we only have a few minutes left in the show here. I did want to touch uh, a little bit here on, you're going to be speaking at uh, Contact in the Desert. So uh, what do you be sharing with everybody there? Well, I'm going to be sharing with them a presentation, which is similar to what I just did, only with a lot more detail. And uh, I want to include some facts um, that are a little different from what I tell on on, uh, on interviews. I've got some... Uh, you know, some updates and some things, uh, for sure, uh, things that uh, unanswered questions from Devil's Den, and then a lot about the reckoning and the stories that those people, folks have shared with me. And then I'm also going to have an experiencer workshop where I'm hoping that uh, people that have, kind of had, that have had contact of some kind, uh, even if they've not, uh, want to come and participate and sit and, and share or listen uh, or tell me about the dreams they had when they were between two and six. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've done those before and, and they're, everybody seems to enjoy them and I certainly enjoy them. So, yeah, so I'll have a workshop too. So attend both, please. That's great. That's great. And contact in the desert is June 25th to 28th and it's all virtual this year. So uh, just go to their website, sign up for it. And then of course, be sure to, uh, to tune into Terry when uh, he's doing his presentation and workshop. So, thank you. Twenty fifth through twenty eighth, and I believe I misspoke at the beginning of the show and said twenty first through twenty fifth. So, sorry, folks. But twenty fifth through twenty eighth. Just go to Got the it, website. Yeah. You guys can you know yeah. figure it out there and sign up. And uh, yeah, yeah, the fact that they're doing it virtual this year because I, I know that everywhere is a little bit different and it's, it's you know, well, you know kind of crazy. Right they got a really cool platform for it. They've got, um, uh, you know, Captain Ron doing a virtual thing called the Observation Deck that'll make it mm -hmm. a lot more than just a virtual. It's not It's not going to be just a Zoom meeting, you know. I, I, I did um, the Ozark uh, show this year virtual, and it was the first one I ever did. And I had a great time, and people that went said they had a great time. So, you know, I think this will be a really good time. So please come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, everybody, come, you know, come check it out. And of course, uh, pick up Terry's books here: "Devil's Den Incident," "Devil's Den True Story," and "Devil's Den: The Reckoning." And they just go to. Well, I've been showing the uh, uh, the ticker here all night. So there's your website, TerryLovelace.com, and they can just go there and hit the. Uh, it's an Amazon link you have up there to get the book, right? Yes, they can go there. They can go straight to Amazon. And I've got a, I, I, there's a um, podcast, pardon that podcast, pardon me, a digital book, an audio book for Devil's oh, okay. Den. So if you like to listen to audio books, uh, I did it in my own voice for better or worse. Uh, yeah. But there you go, read by the author. Fantastic. Read by the author. Oh, yeah, cool. be. <laughs> I love Absolutely. books on tape. I guess they don't make them on tape anymore, do they? Audio books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still so sorry. Well, these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me go get my eight track over there and, you know. Yeah, yeah, they used to be books on tape. When I uh, when I worked in the IT department of the uh, library system there in Maryland, it was they were phasing it out from the books on tape to CD, and now it's just it's all the uh, the audio. It's all digital. Books on record. And, do you remember those? <laughs> I do. Yes. Yeah, story. Okay. I had the story records, yeah. like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, geez. Wow. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how thick. Oh, I had Black Beauty, and it would bing, and you turn the page, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember those. Yeah. Good old days. Yep. <laughs> when you had a toy box. We have a uh, <laughs> uh, last moment $2 super sticker here from Ann Celine. So thank you very much. And this isn't rendering the little graphic, but it uh, it's a little cat doing a thumbs up. So thank you very much, <laughs> Ann. Appreciate that. So, all right, Terry. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight. This was, uh, you know, extremely interesting. I know we'll have to have you back and, and talk some more about this for sure. Well, thank you both very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. I've had a good time. Oh, thank you. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you guys. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Have a great night. And, nice to meet you. Uh, enjoy contact at the desert. I, I will. I will. I hope to talk to you guys soon. Yeah, we'll yeah, talk to I'll you soon. There. Take care. Okay. <laughs> night. Bye. -bye.